0: Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring workday.
1: I will maintain the confidence and
2: preserve inviolate the secrets of my clients. I will
3: maintain the confidence. And preserving Violet, the secrets of my client. Mitch, the letter you got from Bendini, Lambert, and Locke was the only one sent out. We want you. Do you have a... an offer in mind?
4: It includes
3: a bonus schedule, and we'd lease you a new Mercedes. Plus a low-interest mortgage.
4: As in home? With grass And a two-car garage. These are nice people, Abby. Okay, I'm more impressed with it than you are. You grew up with it. Did you ever think I'd make a six-figure salary? Absolutely.
3: Since we deal primarily in tax and securities, our clients are very wealthy. We keep each other's secrets.
4: I don't want anyone with family money. I'm not sure I follow. They want you lean and hungry? If all your money comes from one source, then you tend to be very loyal to that source.
3: Marty Kaczynski and Joe Hodges were killed. There was some kind
4: of explosion on the boat. Kate was scared. Did you know the men who died Yes. You must be overwhelmed with grief.
1: People grieve in different ways, Miss McDear. You think I'm talking about breaking the law?
3: No, I'm just trying to figure out how far you want it bend. As far as you can without breaking it.
2: That room looks like a health hazard. That's four dead lawyers. None of them over the age of 45. Where are you guys? The FBI wouldn't have come after you if they didn't think they'd get to you. Now, what do you think made them think that? I have no idea. Well, they might know how important your young wife is
1: to you. Anything's possible. I'll tell you one thing, if those guys at the steak joint were feds, you better watch out for them. We might be misreading McDear. You've got nothing
2: to be suspicious about. I get paid to be suspicious when I got nothing to be suspicious about.
1: Why are you asking questions about dead lawyers? What dead lawyers? I
2: know you'll do your best to protect the firm. Won't you, Mitch? We have faith that you're going to be with us for a long, long
3: time, Mitch. The fact is, nobody has ever left us.
1: Nobody.
0: Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Firm from 1993. The studio was Paramount Pictures. The release date was June 30th, 1993. The running time, 154 minutes with the rating of R. The budget was $42 million, and the box office was a smash, taking in $158 million, making it the fourth-ranked movie of 1993. Now, that was domestic roast. It made an extra $111 million internationally. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 75% fresh. From 56 Reviews, their critics' consensus is, The Firm is a big studio thriller that amusingly tears apart the last of 1980s boardroom culture and the false securities it represented. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Watching The Firm, I realized that law firms have replaced army platoons as Hollywood's favorite microcosm. The new law thrillers have the same ingredients as those dependable old World War II action films. Various ethnic and personality types who fight with each other when they're not fighting the enemy. The Law movies have one considerable advantage. The female characters participate fully in all the action, instead of just staying home and writing letters to the front. In The Firm, a labyrinth 154-minute film by Sidney Pollock, Tom Cruise plays Mitch McDear, a poor boy who is ashamed of his humble origins now that he has graduated from Harvard Law, fifth in his class. Now, some movies about the Law oversimplify the legal aspects. This movie milks them for all they're worth. Without revealing too much of the plot, I can say that McDeer is eventually being blackmailed simultaneously by both the FBI and the firm's security chief, the kindly old Wilford Brimley, very effective in a rare outing as a villain. To save himself, McDeer has to use both his brains and muscle, outrunning killers and outthinking lawyers to save both his life and his license to practice law the story is fairly clear in its general outlines, but sometimes baffling on the specifics. Based on the novel by John Grisham, as adapted by three of the most expensive screenwriters in the business, David Rabe, Robert Towne, and David Rayfield, the firm takes two and a half hours to find its way through a moral and legal maze. By the end, despite McDear's breathless explanations during phone calls in the middle of a chase sequence, I was fairly confused about his strategy. But I didn't care, since the form of the movie was effective even when the details were vague. Sidney Pollock, the director, likes to make long, ambitious movies. Think Out of Africa and Havana. And he's comfortable working with familiar stars. He uses them as character-building shorthand. One glimpse of Hal Holbrook as the head of the firm, for example, and we know it's a shady outfit. Holbrook almost always plays the seemingly respectable man with dark secrets. One look at Gene Hackman as the law partner who becomes Cruz's mentor, and we know he's flawed but fundamentally a decent man, because he always is. One look at Cruz and we feel comfortable, because he embodies sincerity. He is also, in many of his roles, just a little slow to catch on. His characters seem to trust people too easily, and so it's convincing when he swallows the firm's pitches and pep talks. The movie is virtually an anthology of good small character performances. Ed Harris, sinister with a shaved head, needs only a couple of brief scenes to convincingly explain the FBI's case against the firm, and to reveal its cheerful willingness to subject a potential witness to undurable pressure. Another effective performance is David Strathairn, as the brother McDeer hasn't told the firm about because he's doing time for manslaughter. Straythorne is emerging as one of the most interesting character actors around. He was the slow-witted movie usher in Lost in Yonkers, and the local boy who came courting in Passion Fish. There's also colorful performances by Gary Busey as a fast-talking private eye, and by Holly Hunter as his loyal secretary who witnesses a murder and then becomes McDear's courageous partner. The large gallery of characters make the firm into a convincing canvas, and there are enough believable people here to give McDiore a convincing world to occupy. And Pollock is patient with his material. He'll let a scene play until the point is made a little more deeply. That allows an actor like Hackman to be surprisingly effective in scenes where he subtly establishes that, despite everything, he has a good heart. A late, tricky scene between Hackman and Triplehorn is like a master class in acting. The parts of the firm are probably better than the whole, however. The movie lacks overall clarity, and in the last half an hour, audiences are likely confused over what's happening and why. As I said, that didn't bother me over much. Once I realized the movie would work, even if I didn't always follow it. But with a screenplay that developed the story more clearly, this might have been a superior movie, instead of just a good one with some fine performances. And that's the end of Ebert's Review. So my dad had always been a huge fan of John Grisham's novels prior to the film adaptations, and I remember him raving about The Firm after he first read it. And, but I was only like 13 at the time when the book was first released back in 1991, and I wasn't about to take that challenge. However, I did see the film two years later when it came out, and I loved it. And then I went back and read the book, and both are equally stellar, which is rare because usually it's one way or the other. Alright, Eber covered most of the cast, but I'll still do my part. The main cast, of course, Tom Cruise, Mitch McDear. So, by 1993, Cruise was an absolute superstar. Actually, he's one of the few stars to never really lose his star power once he hit it big with Top Gun back in 1986. And technically, it was really built back in 1983 with Risky Business, but after Top Gun, it was pretty much one hit after another. He had The Color of Money... Cocktail, Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July, Days of Thunder, A Few Good Men, and then The Firm. <laughs> not too shabby, eh? Janine Triplehorn plays Abby McDear, and this was only Triplehorn's second film, with her first being The Great Basic Instinct with Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. And that's not a bad one-two punch for your first two films. She continues to act steadily today, but those two films are definitely her most well-known. Gene Hackman plays Avery Towar, and Hackman is one of my favorite actors of all time. Seriously, he is absolutely fabulous in every single movie he's in. Even if the film is lacking, Hackman is always the best. So prior to The Firm, let's just go through some of his most memorable films. You have The French Connection, The Conversation, Young Frankenstein, Superman, Hoosiers, No Way Out, and Unforgiven. And he continued to have terrific roles until his retirement in 2004 when he decided to write novels in place of acting. Eber mentioned him, but what a terrific supporting cast Ed Harris, Holly Hunter, Hal Holbrook, Wilford Brimley, David Strathern, and Gary Busey. All terrific and all have perfect little roles that make this film really seamless. All right, the director, Sidney Pollock. By 1993, Pollock was one of the most respected directors in the business. His career began in the early 1960s directing TV shows. The first feature film he directed was 1965's The Slender Thread with Sidney Poitier and Anne Bancroft. So other well-known Pollock films that he directed prior to The Firm. They Shoot Horses, Don't They? with Jane Fonda. And then became Robert Redford's go-to director with Jeremiah Johnson. The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand, Three Days of the Condor, with Faye Dunaway. And The Electric Horseman, again with Jane Fonda. He did Bobby Deerfield with Al Pacino. Absence of Malice with Paul Newman and Sally Field, Tootsie with Dustin Hoffman, and they went back to Redford and Meryl Streep, as mentioned, with Out of Africa. Pollock died in 2008 at the age of 73. All right, let's get into the film. So it begins with a montage of Mitch McDeer, that's Tom Cruise, going through his final days at Harvard Law School, and he's interviewing at various law firms. So Mitch is in the top five of his entire class, and essentially he has the pick of the litter when it comes to accepting a job with a law firm. That being said, he's not someone who grew up with wealth or privilege. He still has a job as a server at a restaurant, and he's even interviewing at one firm while he's on his lunch break. The reason that he's now in the driver's seat job-wise is because of his hard work, not because someone helped him to get there by name alone. However, one particular law firm stood above the rest when it came to recruiting Mitch. Do you have any questions for us?
1: Do you have uh,
3: an offer in mind?
2: It includes
3: a bonus schedule, a low interest mortgage so you can buy a home, country club membership, and we'll lease you a new Mercedes. You pick the color, Mitch. Lamar! You haven't been paying attention. His wife picks the color. <laughs> Do I. Do I open it here? Of course unless you can tell us what's in it. A lawyer worth that offer shouldn't have to open the envelope. Mr. McKnight, you are the managing partner at Vendini, Lambert & Locke, is that correct? Yes. Did Mr. Lambert, as senior partner, give you any instructions regarding my employment? He did. And Mr. McKnight, do you usually follow Mr. Lambert's instructions? Objection! Vague, ambiguous. Sustained. What precisely were those instructions? But you were in great demand, and I should make certain that we obtain your services before a bidding situation developed. How did you go about making certain? <laughs> I uh, bribed a clerk in the Harvard Law Placement Office for the exact amount of the mm-hmm. highest offer, and then added 20%. Mitch! The letter you got from Bendini, Lambert, and Locke was the only one sent out. We want you.
0: The last voice you heard was that of Oliver Lambert, played by Hal Holbrook. As you might have guessed, their offer is really too good to pass up. However, the firm decides to fly Mitch and his wife Abby, Janine Triplehorn, to Memphis as part of further recruiting tactics. Bendini, Lambert, and Locke specialize in tax law and accounting. Some interesting things that Mitch and Abby learn on their first trip is that everyone in the firm is married. No single people are recruited. And only one female is part of the firm. Mitch likes the down-home, kind of family-type atmosphere of Memphis. However, Abby is getting more of a cultish, old-world vibe to the whole thing. This means that the wives have their place, which is to breed children and not to have a job of their own. And this does not thrill Abby because she has career ambitions of her own and she's an elementary school teacher. However, Mitch is really stuck with being offered the salary of $96,000 right out of the gate, which goes a hell of a long way in Memphis compared to Massachusetts. So in some of the movie trailers, we're told that the firm doesn't want their lawyers to have family money because it keeps them loyal to only their source of income. And But this doesn't actually appear in the movie, but it's interesting nonetheless. So as we discover, the firm engages in sort of CIA investigative type tactics led by William DeVasher, played by the great Wilford Brimley. They know absolutely every move that both Abby and Mitch make, including the telephone calls Abby made during her visit. So Mitch is already sold on the firm, but it will take a lot of work to get Abby to fall in line with their ideal spouse of one of their associates, so no surprise, Mitch accepts the offer, and they are greeted to a beautiful, fully furnished home, along with a brand new Mercedes. On his first day, Mitch gets to the office, oh, about three hours too early than everyone else. He also gets an introduction from everyone, informing that no new associate has ever failed the bar exam. He also then meets a senior partner named Avery Towar, played by Gene Hackman.
3: What are you doing? That says you've been here since 6.30. I thought I'd jumpstart the bar exam work. Good. No associate's ever failed the bar exam, you know. Come on. I'll show you a new office.
0: Wally Hudson. Contracts. Here
2: to help with the bar exam. Thanks, Wally. No associate of the firm has ever failed the bar exam. First day is a four-hour multiple choice on ethics. Look at the first six chapters. I'll see you Wednesday,
3: 8.45. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding jane curry domestic relations mike
5: allen wills and estates
4: Nina. fuck please i'm sorry
5: can i help you actually
3: i think i'm here to help you i'm every tolar your designated mentor let's go to lunch lunch but it's not even not even noon i know it'll be a working lunch
1: come on up to my office while i drop this off
2: Everything depends on billing. How many hours you spend even thinking about a client. I don't care if you're stuck in traffic or shaving or sitting on a park bench. Now, my particular field... is forming
3: limited partnerships for offshore corporations, mainly in the Cayman Islands.
0: Good. So Mitch goes to lunch with Avery while Abby is dealing with all the different service people that are helping out with the house, including installing phones and other things like that. Now, this will all come into play later as there's a bit of a conflict of interest when a telephone company is hired directly by the firm to install phones. You know, things like wiretapping. Avery is as smooth as it comes, and Gene Ackman, as he does with all of his roles, as I said before, plays the character perfectly. He always comes off as the smartest guy in the room, and he's charming in his own way, and you know you don't want to fuck with him either. Suspiciously, two associates from the firm are killed in a boating accident. Lamar, Terry Kinney, and his wife Kay, played by Barbara Garrick, were close friends with the men killed and seemed scared about their deaths like it wasn't an accident. We then get a nice little montage of Mitch studying for the bar and Abby working as she landed a teaching job in Memphis. Mitch is working long hours in addition to studying for the exam, and Abby isn't too happy about not being able to see him as much at home. One night, Mitch goes to a late-night dinner to continue his studying, and then two men with suits sit across from his table. One of them is Wayne Terrace, played by Ed Harris, who is an FBI agent. The two agents kind of make small talk with Mitch before casually mentioning that four lawyers at the firm have mysteriously died over the past 10 years. Now, Mitch doesn't know they're FBI. Not yet. So Mitch decides to do a little research on the dead lawyers. He doesn't find much, not surprisingly, but what he does find shows that all of them died mysteriously, and in one case, the body was never found. Avery and Mitch go to the Cayman Islands on a business trip, though it feels more like a vacation as they start to go scuba diving before they do any sort of work. When Avery and Mitch do finally meet with their client, named Sonny Caps, it seems that Avery and the firm practice a lot of creative accounting, basically hiding money offshore through shell corporations, which are essentially fake companies, to avoid paying taxes. During this meeting, Mitch shows his vast knowledge of the current tax law, mixed in with his youthful exuberance. Now, Avery wasn't getting far with Sonny, and Mitch stepped in to get Sonny to agree to the proposal that the firm was offering. Avery was very impressed with Mitch, but Mitch is getting suspicious that the firm is tied up with potential mafia associates in Chicago, as Sonny kind of let this slip during their meeting. Then Mitch stumbles upon a closet in Avery's apartment in the Caymans, which has all sorts of files from the dead lawyers at the firm. This further heightens Mitch's suspicions that these associates died from foul play. That night, Avery and Mitch go out to celebrate. Avery is married, but he's a notorious womanizer, while Mitch rejects the offer from a woman he meets at a bar. Mitch decides to walk on the beach a little bit and discovers that a woman is being pushed around by a man. The two see Mitch staring at them, and the man runs off. Mitch asks the woman if she's okay and helps bandage her sprained ankle. The woman is grateful for his help, and the two end up hooking up on the beach, though it took some heavy seducing on the woman's part. More on this later. Now, Pally Berry actually auditioned for the role of this young woman on the beach who seduces Mitch, but she didn't get the part. Mitch and Avery fly home the next day. However, Mitch takes a detour and visits his brother Ray, played by David Stratham, who is in an Arkansas prison. Mitch divulges his suspicions to Ray about how he thinks the firm is into illegal activities. And Ray asks a poignant question. How did Mitch land a job with a prestigious firm with a brother in jail? Ray says to contact a private investigator he knows named Eddie Lomax, that's Gary Busey. Eddie and Ray were cellmates, and his secretary and mistress is a ball of fire named Tammy Hemphill, played by the great Holly Hunter. This is very much in the vein of the old private investigators from the film noir days. Eddie is enthusiastic, but kind of nuts, and he agrees to investigate since he owes Ray a favor. Perfect for a Gary Busey-type role. And that night, Eddie receives a few visitors.
1: She's in Cleveland.
4: She
5: lies. Don't you answer your phone? Don't you knock?
1: Where's your secretary? Out. She left a cigarette burning. She does that. Why don't you come back in one hour and make an appointment? Why bother? We're here. I'm busy. Doing what? I'm getting a pedicure. What's it to you? Now, this is going to turn out badly for you, but we can make it relatively painless. Why are you asking questions about dead lawyers? What dead lawyers? Who
2: hired you to do that?
1: Uh, okay, okay, just let me think, uh, his name was Julio Iglesias. <laughs> oh! Oh! No! No! Great, just great, you want to ask him a few questions now?
0: So Tammy was hiding under the desk as Eddie was killed, and she wasn't spotted by the hitmen. Mitch attends a conference in Washington and gets a note from Wayne, the FBI agent, and includes a newspaper article of Eddie Lomax's murder.
3: Who killed Eddie Lomax? Go over and sit next to the man
2: on the bench.
1: I appreciate your coming, Mr. McDear. I'll call you Mitch, if I may. My name is Voiles, Denton Voiles. I'm with the Department of Justice.
3: What happened to Eddie Lomax?
1: We've been investigating Bendini, Lambert, and Locke for four years. No lawyer has ever left your law firm alive. Two tried to leave, they were killed. Two were about to try, you know what happened. We have reason to believe that your house is bugged. Your phones are tapped, your office is wired. they may follow you. they may be here in Washington as we speak.: Are you saying my life?: is I'm indentured? saying that your life, as you know it, is over. Your law firm is the sole legal representative of the Moraldo crime family in Chicago, known as the Mafia, the Mob. I don't believe it. They set up legitimate businesses with dirty money from drugs, gambling, prostitution. All cash, all moved offshore. You believe it. That's why you talked to Thomas A. Banks and the Caymans. That's why you got this private investigator asking questions that got him killed. Maybe 30% of their clients are legitimate. They bring in a new rookie, throw money at him, buy the car, the house. After a couple of years and your kids are in private schools, they're used to the good life, they tell you the truth.
0: So now Mitch is in an impossible situation. If he doesn't help the DOJ bring down the firm, he'll go to jail eventually once they're indicted. If he does help the DOJ or tries to leave the firm... He and his wife are in danger of being killed by the firm. There's amazing tension, and it's a perfect plot setup. In addition, Wayne brings up Ray's upcoming parole hearing, essentially saying if he doesn't help the feds, Ray's parole will likely be denied. Again, Mitch has quite the predicament. Mitch's first play is to go to the partners of the firm and tell them bluntly that the feds approached him. He gives them most of the details, but not all. He's trying to show that he's still loyal to the firm. So that night, Mitch arrives home and cranks up the stereo in the house as he knows that the house is being bugged. He then whispers in Abby's ear, and she panics and runs out of the house. It's a really well-done scene.
5: Abby!
4: Abby! Don't say anything! Don't say anything! Don't tell me anymore! Everything! Every single thing we've said or done since we've been in that house! Nothing has been between us! Can we just... Get in our own car and drive back to Boston tonight. We'll just leave everything. Find us. How do you go to work tomorrow? How do you look at Avery? What do you say to him? I talk about work. That's oh, insane. I have thought of every possible way here in the Caymans, in Washington. That's all I've done. Try to think of a way out. If we run, they'd find us. And it gets Ray killed. But if you testify. The t- FBI says they'll help Ray and protect us. Protect what? What are you going to do?
3: Go in tomorrow and start to copy files. I don't have a choice.
4: Mitch! What are you saying? You'll be revealing clients' secrets. You'll be disbarred. You'll never be able to practice law again for the rest of your life. Everything you've worked for. They can't ask you to do that. They are not asking! We have to behave exactly as we have been.
3: We have to go to work and come home every day and never wonder about the walls and the wires. And do nothing we want to do.
0: Mitch's sole focus at this point is trying to copy as many of the incriminating files and get them to the DOJ. But then he gets an unexpected visitor, Tammy.
4: How did you see them when they didn't see you? I was under the desk. I was vacuuming in the rug. You want me to draw you a diagram? I loved him. I'm sorry, Tammy. Um, they wanted to know who hired him and why he was asking questions about them lawyers. You actually saw them? Um guy was stocking look like a wrestler. He's going to live the rest of his life because Eddie hit him in the knee with that cannon under his desk. The other guy was like an albino. And long, thin hair, almost white, dead blue eyes. My landlady said they came looking for me yesterday, so I checked in the Motel 6 on River Street. I couldn't think anywhere else to go. Listen, um, they're gonna put Eddie together with Ryan when they do, it'll lead to you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Eddie wouldn't like it. So you're in as much trouble as I am.
3: Listen, there's a building around the corner called the
4: Cotton Exchange. Maybe you can't help, Timmy.
0: After his meeting with Tammy, Mitch gets an unexpected and impromptu meeting with the head of the firm's security team, William DeVasher, and the albino-looking guy that Tammy mentioned.
2: Hi there, Mitch. Bill DeVasher, firm security. Mr. Locke and Mr. Lambert were telling me about your little run-in with the FBI. I wonder if we could have a little talk. Actually, I told them everything. I'm sure you did. This won't take a minute. Hop in. So Mitch, this is a debriefing. You know pretty much what you told the fellas. So I kinda got the picture. Now it's my job to give you the picture. What I'm concerned about, son, is this. The FBI wouldn't have come after you if they didn't figure they'd get to you. What do you suppose made him think that? I have no idea. Well. See, it's my job to have an idea about that. For example, they might know how important your young wife is to you. And they might choose that. How? Avery says last Friday you took the afternoon off. He figures you might have been with another woman. Why would Avery say... How do you think- know you weren't followed? Here's your Abby, one day walking to the mail anticipating the arrival of her Red Book, her sharper image catalog. What does she find instead? She finds heartache, Mitch. The death of love and trust. Imagine her one day opening that. Go ahead, take a look. Devastating, Not just screwing, Mitch. But the kind of intimate acts, oral and whatnot. It could be particularly hard for a trusting young wife to forgive and impossible to forget. That's just the kind of stuff the FBI could use for coercion, Mitch. So you watch yourself. I'll do the best I can to protect you. And I know you'll do your best to protect the firm. So if the FBI so much as spits in your direction, you'll let me know before it hits the ground, won't you? Won't you, Mitch?
0: So everyone's got Mitch by the balls now, no pun intended, as there's now photographic evidence of his quick fling with the woman in the Caymans. So Mitch is shaken up, of course, and heads back to the office and he's immediately taken into a conference room.
2: Oliver wants to see you right
3: now in the library. Where you been? Let me just put my coat away. Right
0: now. He's been waiting.
3: You think you're pretty smart, don't you? Well, we've been informed there's somebody smarter. You didn't get the highest score in the bar exam, you got the second highest score.
4: (laughs)
5: Congratulations.
3: They called you, huh? Uh, guilty, Your Honor. I, I did. Well, it's your moment of glory.
1: You know, my wife missed mine, and uh, she never forgave herself. I wouldn't want that to happen to you.
4: That's very considerate, Ava. Well, I thought
5: so.
0: Abby and Mitch go to a restaurant for the dinner that night, and Mitch tells Abby about his Cayman's fling. Abby is understandably shocked and upset, and she leaves the restaurant. At the same time, Avery is called into a meeting with the partners and the head of the security about their discovery of Mitch's brother Ray being in prison. Interestingly enough, Avery, though he has faults of his own, he believes in Mitch, and he seems to be on his side. Though it's complicated because it's obvious, Avery knows the firm is dirty, but he is resigned to himself to that fact, and he has no other place to go. In the meantime, Tammy is working with Mitch to help copy the important files. Mitch smuggles them out of the office and covertly transfers them to Tammy, who has leased a tiny office in Memphis with a copy machine. For example, Tammy will appear in the elevator that Mitch is also on, and she'll take his briefcase and then leave hers that looks exactly the same. Kind of the cloak and dagger stuff. During a meeting with the client, Mitch discovers that the firm has been over billing hours, which simply put, is corporate embezzling. Most clients will never notice the precise hours they're being billed for, and then the firm pockets the funds. Because these billing practices were sent through the US mail, this becomes a federal offense. This will come into play later. Now, Mitch still has to figure out how he's going to handle the feds and also help Ray with his parole. He ends up meeting with Wayne at a dog racetrack in a very memorable scene.
2: Champagne now rushes up, 12... Doesn't
3: a dog ever get the bone?
2: Yeah, I hear it happens once in a while. It's a disaster. We can never get that dog to run again. Listen, Mitch. Mr. Voiles <inaudible> wants me to tell you how much the Bureau appreciates. A million
4: dollars in a number to count in Switzerland.
3: IBG Bank International in Zurich. Well, sure as hell turned greedy overnight. And my brother out. Now. Your brother is a convicted felon, Mitch. And get yourself another snitch. He's in for manslaughter. There's was a brawl in a bar. If he hadn't done any boxing, it'd have been self-defense. He's still a felony, Mitch. You heard me, Terrence. My brother out now. And make it a million and a half.
2: How about you get down on your knees and kiss
3: my ass for not indicting you as a co-conspirator right now, you chicken shit little Harvard cocksucker. I haven't done anything. You know it. Who gives a fuck? I'm a federal agent. You know what that means, you low-life motherfucker? You got no rights. Your life is mine. I could kick your teeth down your throat, yank them out your or I'm not even violating your civil rights! You are Agent Wayne Terrence. Yeah, hey, you're goddamn right I am. Maybe local cops can
2: Yeah?
4: Is this Wayne Terrence? Who is this? Is this Wayne Terrence?
2: Yeah, this is Wayne Terrence.
4: So is this. Sucker. I haven't done anything. You know it. Who gives
3: a fuck? I'm a federal agent. You know what that means, you low-life motherfucker? You got no rights. Your life is mine. I could kick your teeth down your throat, yank them out your asshole. I'm not even violating your civil rights. Yeah. I think you ought to reconsider.
0: All right. There's about a half an hour left in the movie, and I, of course, could keep going, but it's way too good and you should just watch the film on your own. Again, movies adapted by John Grisham novels are almost always top-notch, but for me, the firm takes the cake. And the tension, suspense, and outcome are absolutely terrific. Do yourself a favor, revisit the film, or watch it for the first time. You won't be disappointed. And also, check out the book. Going back to the film, it's just top-notch acting. You have so many great actors, sometimes you can get overwhelmed if a movie isn't as good, and it doesn't have as many scenes for those uh, particular actors. But in this case... Everyone knows their role, everyone knows their little part, and it works out great. Alright, so you might be wondering, what is the difference, or what are the subtle differences between the novel and the movie? That's what I'm here for. So the ending is different, but I can't spoil that for you. To give you a broad overview, the manner in which Mitch gets out of the bind he's in kind of has less of a tidy ending in the book for Mitch compared to the movie. In the book, Mitch gets a BMW instead of a Mercedes. Not a huge difference, but some people might care. Avery is kind of more of a scumbag in the novel, where he's more of a complicated, almost sympathetic figure in the film. In the novel, Mitch's one-night stand is never discovered by Abby, though there is suspense around it. DeVasher sends an envelope to Abby, and Mitch sees the open envelope, believing that Abby saw the photos of him and the woman. However, DeVasher was playing with Mitch, and the envelope was empty. Now, in the film, as I mentioned, Mitch tells Abby about the fling. There are a few other details about the difference between the movie and the book, but that would just give away too much of the plot. Alright, some fun facts. Holly Hunter was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, though she was only on screen for six minutes total, but she ended up losing to Anna Paquin for her role in The Piano. Meryl Streep was initially the first choice as the lead character, but John Grisham objected to this, and Tom Cruise was cast as the lead. Of course, if Meryl Streep was in the movie, this would have totally changed the plot point because Sidney Pollock's original intention was to have the main character have an affair with Avery Tolar. The character was to be changed to a female, as I mentioned before. David Grusin was nominated for Best Original Score, but he lost to John Williams for Schindler's List. I should mention that the score in The Firm is really great. Terrific piano work throughout the film. So Gene Hackman's contract called for his name to come before the title in all promotion materials. Tom Cruise's contract called for his name and his name only to come before the title in all promotional materials. So Hackman opted to leave his name off all promotional materials completely, making his presence a surprise to most audiences. In the film, Hackman's name comes after Cruise's and before the title. Robin Wright turned down the part later taken by Janine Triplehorn, and Charlie Sheen was considered for the part of Mitch McDeer. All right, we have two great guests. Sonny Pooney from the Grown Up Rock Podcast and Podcast Rock City, a KISS podcast, is here to join me to talk about The Firm. And also writer and frequent guest Bill Roseberry also joins us to talk about The Firm. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD list. All right, we're back with Sonny Hollywood Pooney from the Grown Up Rock podcast and also Podcast Rock City. And uh, today we're going to talk about The Firm. Now, usually um, I ask people, if if I know this is based on a novel, uh, have they read the book? But we got this out of the way a while ago. You don't read books. And so I, I take it you haven't read this one?
5: I'm not a reader, haven't read the book, don't have any interest in writing, reading the book. And I get it. People are like, if you don't read the book, then you're only seeing... The content through the eyes of the director. Yeah, I'm cool with that.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, this is one where, you know, a lot of times the the book, is they often say, is better than the film. This is one where it's about equal. Uh, it's that good. And, Gr- and I'm sure you've seen many Grisham adaptations.
5: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. The, the issue with some of these movies that are about books, though, they get long in the tooth. Sure. So it's hard for a quick watch. Like, you, you know, I'm finding in these quarantine times having my attention for 90 minutes is a, really a miracle. Like, <laughs> no matter what I'm watching, like after 60 minutes, I'm like, is this thing over yet or what? When you clock this movie at like two and a half hours, you know, it's a hard watch.
0: Okay. So that that's a good point. So how, how do you feel? Did this keep your
5: interest the whole time? It did. And the reason, uh, you know, I'm kind of outing myself here a little bit. The reason it kept my interest is I didn't understand it. The first couple of times I watched it, like there's, okay. There's at least four or five times I had to watch this movie. Before I got, okay, what happened with that guy? And what's happening with that dude? And right. why is Lomax even in this movie? He lasted about three and a half seconds. And, you know, there was some things in the movie. Even the last time I watched it, I picked up. And uh, so, yeah, for me, uh, I watch it every once in a while. And now I can pick it up like in the middle of the movie, right? So you've we've all had those movies where I think like Malcolm X, I think I was telling you once, Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, every time I turned it on, it was 30 minutes in, into the movie. So I never saw the first 30 minutes of the movie. Uh-huh. You know, Or there's movies like, ah, I can't start it there because I don't know what happened so far. Like I haven't st- seen the Joker yet. It's sitting in my queue and i want to watch it from start to finish, but I don't want to catch it halfway through. Yeah, right? that's, a, that's a dark one too. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm sure that I won't uh, understand it if I start it that way. But I'm finally at a point with this movie where I can start it somewhere in the middle, bottom third and still catch to where we're at. And that brings up a good point because this this novel was huge. I mean,
0: this I mean Gr- this was Grisham's second book, and then uh, he really just kind of took off. He's like one of the top-selling authors. He's up there like Stephen King and, and guys like that. And so I think a lot of people had read the book and so probably knew enough about the plot going into the film. But you're totally right. There is a lot going on here where you can miss kind of the subtleties and get kind of wrapped up in little plot points that – don't necessarily factor into
5: the, the final plot, but uh, but yeah, you, t- you make a totally uh, valid point here. Yeah, and they kind of hide that the mob's involved yep. until later into the movie, right? So once you've watched the movie once and you know the mob's involved, then the beginning of the movie makes more sense.
0: Absolutely. And so did you like, I mean, without really spoiling anything, did you like they kind of almost wrap it up in a bow at the end?
5: Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do. I do like that. I do like that. I, it's a very well-written movie with a ton of star power. Like oh, the star yeah. power is amazing. Yeah. And we'll, we'll just go right through them. So how did you feel about, uh, Janine Triplehorn? I thought she did a great job. Um, she's in actually one of my, uh, one of my favorite movies, Mickey blue eyes. Oh yeah. Love that movie. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, I thought she did a really good job. Initially, when I knew that Holly Hunter was going to be in this movie, I thought she would be playing Abby. Oh, okay. So when I saw Abby, I'm like, oh, maybe he gets married twice. Maybe he gets married later because, but Holly Hunter doesn't even come into the movie till what? Halfway through it. And she's barely in it. And she actually was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> for yeah. Supporting and they her as a major actress in this film, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she's perfect in that role. You know, it, just like Gary Busey's perfect in
5: his, his short role yeah he's just as crazy as that role has him to be uh
0: yeah he's always that guy you know whether it be point break or whatever
5: (laughs) yeah and you know tom cruise uh, one of the key stars of my lifetime right i Uh, mean he's been all the way from risky business all the way to the last mission impossible movie this guy's been there my entire movie watching life and he's really never had a low at least movie wise. I mean, he went through that weird phase with when he's jumping on the couch with Oprah
0: and everything and is obviously his personal life, but uh, movie wise, the guy has been since basically t- Risky Business and Top Gun. <laughs> he is the last of the major movie stars.
5: Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be hard to replace that because it seems like what's happening with movie stars and it happened a little bit in the in the 80s and 90s too is you would get an actor or an actress that would get into the business in their early 20s and mm-hmm. burn out by their mid-30s, and then you wouldn't see them again because they're not the young, hot actress like Pierce Brosnan. Like, when was the last time he was in a movie? Yeah, it's been a while. Yep. Right? So those type of actors that were super hot for like 10, 15 years, whether it's TV or movies or bouncing back and forth, and then just kind of either are now behind the scenes or producing or just living on the money that they made, but mm-hmm. Cruz, like you said, never stopped.
0: Right. And it's always harder for actresses because everything is based on looks, unfortunately. And you have your Meryl Streep's. But after that, it's really difficult for actresses to keep up uh, those parts. And then, uh, you know, um, with the other exception of the rule is uh, I think the last of the big actors and they're more recent,
5: uh, I would say the pick up that would be Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. But they're getting older, too. And you're seeing them in less and less movies, and they now are when well, they've been doing this a while. They take these roles that are so super serious and yep and complicated, and you know, part documentaries almost, an autobiography type thing. And it's like, come on, I can you just do a fun movie. Well, that's why I loved
0: Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, it, I thought that,
5: yeah, I thought most of that movie was pretty good. I thought yeah. most of that movie was
0: pretty it's, good. It's uh, well, there's there's another long one, but that's Tarantino. So. <laughs> yeah. But going back to the actors, okay, so we just named a few. We didn't even get into Gene Hackman and Ed Harris. I mean, that's awesome.
5: Gene Hackman, um, so I didn't pick this up until just watching it uh, the last time I watched it. I'm like, oh, maybe he's playing the part of what Tom Cruise would become if Uh he's kept down the path. Exactly. Right, And I'm like, oh, I didn't get that before. And then I started thinking about Gene Hackman. I'm like, you know what? He was in a lot of movies that I watched in the 80s and 90s. I didn't realize how old he already was by the time I was watching him. Because right? oh, yeah. he started his career in the, in the 60s. 60s. Yeah. yeah. And I not really watched that many movies that are older than basically 1980. So right. I think probably the first time I saw Gene Hackman was a Superman movies. Oh, right? yeah. That was yeah. probably the yeah. first one. Mm-hmm. Um but Ed Harris. Oh, who doesn't love The Rock? It is one of my favorite movies. Right well, when Ed, Ed Harris shows up in the in the cafe, I'm like, "Oh, that's <laughs> Ed Harris. All right, this is going to be good." Yeah, and and he
0: has a vital role, not a huge role, but it's a vital role. It's just like Wilford Brimley. Yeah,
5: absolutely. Yeah, it, it, the he plays this kind of like badass yeah, It's just interesting because he's an old fat guy, right? Yeah. So how's he playing this badass? Like the Nordic-looking guy, I get it, right? Yeah. The, all of them in the 90s had the flowing Scandinavian hair, right? right. They were all um, they're all hitmen. Uh, sure. Wilford does a pretty good job of playing the bad guy, though, for not looking the part, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And then you also have um, David Stratham, who plays um, Tom Cruise's brother in it, another great actor.
5: Yeah, I thought that was a good twist to the movie, um, and I thought that the part that was believable to me is that you're going to get in the bed with the DOJ or whatever, mm-hmm. and you want your brother's release to be part of that. Yeah. The part that was not sellable to me, and the only criticism I have of the movie, and I guess slash the book, is that DOJ ain't giving you $750,000, no. and you not pay a single price. Like that's That's not even sellable now.
0: Right, right. Like this isn't that. I mean, it, to take out this law firm even though it's a big deal, like they aren't, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe it's Epstein, but I don't know. They're not going to they're not going to for for this tiny little law firm in in Georgia, I don't think they're going to go to this extent to nail them.
5: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And then that scene when um Abby comes back into the house that's trashed. Yeah. And and uh, Mitch has packed and, you know, she kind of asks where are you going? I'm going to find you. That whole love scene slash connecting back together slash have I lost you? Have I not lost you? That is a absolute classic uh, Goosebumps type scene. And I'm usually not into those type of scenes. But, man, do the, those two really sell it there.
0: Oh, they do. And and they And also the scene where he... Um, comes, he, she, he turns up the music and he's whispering in her ear, you know, to basically tell her that the house is bugged. That's great too, because they don't say a word. You're just watching it visually because you can only hear the music. And then she, she runs out of the house. That's a great scene as well.
5: And the, I remember that scene made me laugh the other day because, so she runs out of the house. I'm like, oh Yeah. Because it's a Tom Cruise movie. You know, he's got yeah, to show he's you. He's got to run. run. <laughs> yeah, because he runs a lot, right?
0: He, he does, actually. <laughs> It'll be interesting because <laughs> he they are. I don't know when it's going to be released
5: now because everything's delayed. But I, I can't wait to see the the next uh, Top Gun. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he'll be running to the fighter jet. Like, yeah. he'll be running. There's no he doubt. He will be. <laughs> and, he, and when he's he's 80, he'll be running with the walker or whatever he's going to have. So. <laughs>
0: yeah. I love I, I wish he keep doing Jack Reacher movies. I love those, too.
5: Yeah, oh, they're much better than those movies that, uh, oh, God, what, um, damn it, John Wick? They're better yeah. than the John Wick movies, that's for sure.
0: Oh, I agree. And, uh, yeah, Keanu, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with them. I, I think he's fine in those movies. But, yeah, they get a little bit, uh, it's
5: a little bit too much with the, uh, the slow motion action. Uh, and how do you kill 85 people and get no blood on your shirt? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> well, it's like with the A-team, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. The- <laughs> well so you would definitely recommend this
0: uh even if you haven't read the novel
5: oh absolutely and uh i would tell you uh don't walk away from your drink that's still not a good uh, idea gene yeah. gene hackman really got messed up with that
0: he did he did and uh and so actually if, if you can remember off the top of your head what are your, some of your favorite grisham adaptation uh movies
5: Oh, that one's tough because okay, name some Grisham ones because I don't know who exactly wrote all these books.
0: Okay, so you have the client, uh, the one with um, Tommy Lee Jones and Susan Sarandon yeah. and the little boy. Uh, you have yeah. the Pelican Brief with Denzel
5: and, oh, and uh that, one was, that yeah, one was good.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, Time to Kill, I believe, with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson.
5: Yeah, that one was good too.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good ones. There, there's another one with Matt Damon. I think it's The Rainmaker.
5: Oh, that was a good movie too.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, that's a, that's the thing. I think he's, he's up there with like Stephen King and, and those type of uh, novelists that uh, have really good movie
5: adaptations. Who wrote the uh, Travolta one about uh, the chemicals in the river and all that? Who wrote that Oh, one? Oh, that's a good one. I'd have to look it up. I don't know if it's off the top of my head. Th- that's when I get confused. It's like, who wrote that book or the Humphrey at October? Like there's these well, adaptations yeah. that are happening that confuses me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Tom Clancy did all of the Jack Ryan novels that uh, Harrison Ford was in and, and uh, obviously Hunt, Hunt for Red October. Uh, another great one is uh, David Baldacci wrote. Um, oh, God. It's with Gene Hackman and um, Clint Eastwood. Um, Absolute Power. That's a great
5: one. Oh, yeah. That, I haven't seen that in a long time, but that is a good movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very much uh, similar in the kind of a thriller aspect to it. But yeah, this is great. And uh, Sonny says, check it out and don't bother with the book. You don't need to read the book.
5: Yeah. And be careful with damsels in distress that get you in trouble every time.
0: Absolutely. You can see that set up uh, coming from my way. He does get vindicated in the end, (laughs) though.
5: That's a little bit.
0: (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Thank you
5: as always, Sonny. All right. Thanks, man.
0: All right. I am back with frequent guest Bill Roseberry. Welcome back, Bill. How's it going, man? Good, good. And of course, I want to give you a plug and a shout out. You're, of course, on the Metal Mike show every uh, every Friday, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern time, a little bit of a later time change. And uh, it's always on thatmetalstation.com. And you guys always have a, a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I want to give you a plug for that. It's a great show and great rapport with Metal Mike. So we're going to kind of transition to The Firm and, and you being a writer. And uh, before we actually get into the movie, have you actually read uh, the John Grisham book of The Firm?
6: I have not read The Firm. So the John Grisham books I have read, I do have The Firm, but I've just never read it. Okay. The one, But I've read a lot of John Grisham's. So I've read um, The Time to Kill. I've read The Rainmaker. I've read uh, Playing for Pizza, mm-hmm. which was a, um, a football book that he did. Yep. And then I read Bleachers, which is mm-hmm. uh, another football book he did um, um, about a coach that died and it was in Texas, and the old, the players come back for the coach's funeral. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read those, but – so I've read all those. But then I also have the firm upstairs, and I think I have um, the client. And um, I got his Ford County, which is a, a group of short stories that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm going to read that, I think, next, the, my next book. But John Grisham is one of my favorites. Um I've, I've always respected him as a writer. Uh, a Time to Kill, I thought, was a wonderful book. I think it's a better story than The Firm. That was his first book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's my favorite. And uh, obviously, A Time to Kill did not take off like The Firm. Um, no. When The Firm came out, it became a New York Times best bestseller. That's what made him. And then A Time to Kill then they people went back and bought that but then the firm was the first movie um that's right adap- adapted from a uh from from one of his books too i think the pelican brief pelican brief was the second and then i i believe maybe a time to kill might have been the third so uh yeah but um I, so yeah. of
0: all of all the the movies what, what is your favorite from the adaptations
6: uh, A Time to Kill I think would be my favorite movie too. Yeah but, yeah. but The Firm is really good too. I think in my movie collection I own um I own The Client, A Time to Kill, uh The Firm and um The Rainmaker.
0: Okay. And Pelican and was, Brief's great too.
6: You know now I've never I have ne- I haven't even ever watched Pelican Brief. Denzel I mean, Washington Yeah, user- I've never watched yeah. it or read the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I need, to, I need to do that. Uh I know um I was going to say, probably out of most of the book-to-movie um, books that I've read that have been turned into movies, I would say The Rainmaker is one of the most true-to-form that I've seen. Maybe the most true-to-form. I mean, it, the movie follows the book almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I, Like I said, I've never read The Firm, uh, but I know A Time to Kill, they there's a few changes from the book oh, especially sure. the, the ending is totally different yeah with the book than it is with the movie but yeah. uh, the Rainmaker I mean they pretty much followed that you know to a T mm-hmm. and I know one great thing about Grisham and I know a lot of writers don't get this opportunity but Grisham has always had a lot of say in the movie process too. Right, he's usually right. pretty involved, and some of them don't. I don't know if you know who uh, you know who Michael Chabon is. Chabon, I think it's his, how you pronounce
0: his I, name. I, I don't believe so.
6: Oh, have you ever seen the movie Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas? Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah and I Tony have. Wire and, and yeah, so that was a uh, Michael Chabon. I, I, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. I've read, I've never read that book. I've read another one of his books, but Wonder Boys is the only adaptation to a movie that. That he's ever had and I saw an interview with him one time and he said that as a as a writer as a novelist if your goal is to have a movie made off of your material Hollywood's gonna break your heart sure 90% of the time because he said you know yeah Wonder Boys made it to the big screen and it became a huge success and it really helped my career but he goes I had like three other books that were supposed to go to movies and they'd make it all the way to the production floor, you know, where everything was supposed to start and then just get everything would fall apart. You know, he goes, so it's just uh, Hollywood is a a fickle place, you know?
0: Well, yeah. And it doesn't know like. You don't know who the producer's going to be. The director might have a different vision. I mean, that's when, you know, Stephen King famously is probably the most famous author, you know, that had, you know, film adaptations, I would say, Absolutely. of all of them. And, you know, he could, he always felt, even in his, you know, the, you know, Carrie, The Shining, they were always done wrong. And so when he finally tried to do it on his own, he wrote and directed, he did Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> and I think he maybe had a little bit more of an appreciation of of the whole process. And it's funny because, his best work, movie-wise, was mostly his short stories. You know, The Green right. Mile or Shawshank or Stand By Me. Stand By Me, right. Yeah, and so it's really they're interesting that right. they're a completely different beast, you know, novels compared to movies. And uh, I think he learned that.
6: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is, it is uh, difficult. Well, even I was reading some stuff up on The Firm today. So Sidney Pollack initially wanted to turn... He wanted to change Mitch McDeer into a woman. And was mm. going to have Meryl Streep play that role. That's and was right. Was going to have her have an affair with Avery, which was Gene Hackman. That's right. And it's like that's completely different from what you know what Grisham had written in the book. I mean, what's the point? Then write your own screenplay and make your own story. Then that's
0: right. So we'll go back to the firm. <laughs> right. and, uh, when you did you when you first saw this was in the theater? Was it on video? Like how did you first uh, you know hear about this? Or did you know about the book?
6: Um, I, I saw it uh, on video, um, and I saw it pretty much when it came out. I I knew who John Grisham was, but at that point, I mean, what, the movie came out, was it 93? Yes. Okay, um, so I was either 16 or 17. I wasn't reading books too much then, you mm-hmm. know, and so, I mean, I, I knew who John Grisham was, but wanted to watch the movie because all the... People that were in it, you know. I'm hit or miss on Tom Cruise. Like, I have some movies that I absolutely love that he's in. Probably back then I was a bigger fan than I am now. I mean, Tom Cruise is either... It's either a movie that I love or it's a movie that it's like, you know, just... Go away, you egotistical douche! You know, I mean that's that's kind of the way I look at him. Like I don't really like Top Gun very much.
0: Really? Oh. No,
6: no, I'm not a fan of Top Gun. As a the kid
0: of the '80s, you're you're are no, <laughs>
6: but a few good men, risky <laughs> sure. business, the firm, Minority Report, Last Samurai, Collateral. Those are all some of my my favorites. I even I I loved him in, in Taps. Mm. You know, um, I thought how, he was great. How About at,
0: all the right moves.
6: Um, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I don't own that. But yeah, that was that was a uh, pretty decent. That was a good movie, too. Yeah. But Risky Business to me was I mean, that's that's a Stone Cold classic. Sure. With him. Now, What, so.
0: what about the uh, Mission Impossible series? No, I don't
6: like any of those. Really? really.
0: Uh, well, actually, no. another adaptation from novels is Jack Reacher. And I, I've been enjoying those as well. He did two of those films.
6: And I, I have not watched those yet. I mean, it just, I don't know. I need to. I've heard they're not bad. but
0: Yeah, and it, the the character, talk about character, different than the novel. So in the book, Jack Reacher is, oh, he's about 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six, he's kind of built like Thor. And right. then you have Tom Cruise, who is not that.
6: But, right, that's one of the reasons why I never watched it.
0: But there I is movie magic, because my, my dad loves uh, Lee Child and, and the character Jack Reacher, and he's read all of his books. And so when he saw the film, he wasn't sure. But then when he saw it, he was like, you know what? Tom Cruise pulled it off. So if you hadn't read the book, um, you'll appreciate it. And uh, and the stories are really well told. So I, I think you give it a shot. You might like it.
6: Well, it's like Metal Mike always says, you know, Anne Rice was pissed when they got him to play Lestat in uh, Interview with the Vampire. Vampire, yep. And then after... He did the role she was like oh my god he absolutely nailed it he was right. great you know? mm-hmm. but he wasn't anything that she had in mind
0: yeah playlist that yeah well so. with the firm you can't you can't deny how good the cast is with janine triple oh, or gene hackman oh yeah so let's go through that like how, how do you feel about <laughs> the, the the actors in this oh my god it's it's a
6: who's who i mean when i watched it again a while back because i knew we were going to do this I had forgotten that some of the people were even in it, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, what, you got David Strathairn, you got Gary Busey, Holly Hunter, you know, um, like you said, Gene Hackman, Wilford Brimley, um, uh, who was the guy, oh, Ed Harris,
0: Ed Harris, um,
6: I can't remember his name now, the guy that went on and did the, um, uh, to play Jigsaw, he's one of the, uh, oh, he was, he was one of the hitmen or whatever, Oh yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember his name, but you know he he was in it. He's a good actor. Uh, yep, such a spooky looking dude. Kind uh, of. I, I know I'm forgetting some people. There's just so many, you know, so many people up and down in that that movie that are great. You know, it's, and uh, T- Tobin Bell. Tobin Bell. Yes, that's yeah. his name. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just so many, so many great great actors in there. And uh, I mean, Gene Hackman, Avery. Mike, my, oh. my favorite character in the movie. I mean, such he, a great performance. He's such a complex.
0: Yes, you know, he's very character. complicated because, yeah, you. I, I think. And that's, I think, where the book's a little bit different. Um, yeah, his characters is uh, you almost feel bad for. Him. He's like kind of said he's a broken man. He's a broken man. He's not necessarily a bad guy, but he keeps making bad decisions because he's so deep in the firm.
6: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that basically he is Mitch. Yeah, but just he didn't get out. And, mm-hmm. it, and it became too much. It kind of swallowed him up. That's basically the the the, the storyline there. I would think with him, and that's why he likes Mitch the way he does, you know. But uh, it, yeah, it, it, it just watching Hackman is so it was so sad. And I loved I loved Wilford Brimley in this movie too. I mean, as the security guy, he was <laughs> such a dick, just the way he did it. I mean, because usually, you know, I I've always thought Wilfred Wilford Brimley always reminded me of my grandpa. Sure. So I was always a big fan of his, and, but boy, in that movie, he was a huge dick. Oh, there's another Hal Holbrook.
0: Hal Holbrook plays yeah, the, the main guy.
6: Yeah, yeah, and I always, I've always been a fan of Hal Holbrook too. Uh, you know, I did learn something. Um, you know, uh, the girl that that seduces him, that they set up on the beach when he yes. has the affair. Yes. Originally, that uh, they were, uh, Halle Berry tried out for that role. I did know that. Yeah, that yeah, would have been that's, cool. Yeah, that would have been really cool. And then also, I saw something too. You know, uh, and I had forgotten that Holly Hunter was up for a uh, Academy Award for her performance in that. Yeah, and she's barely in it. All right. Yeah, they, it said it was one of the long, the shortest. I think altogether screen time for her in that movie was like five minutes and fifty seconds. Yeah, absolutely. It yeah, was well, the and then- shortest. You and know, you forget
0: Gary Busey's in it because that's her boss, boss slash, you know, romantic partner.
6: Right. I mean, it sucked, you know, because he gets, you know, taken out so yep. early on. Because I, I at that point, I really liked Gary Busey. I mean, now I think he's a crazy old old codger. But I mean, back then, you know, I mean, I thought I thought he was really cool. And and I liked his role. I was expecting more. I I wish they would have developed him a little bit more, but. And they were just trying to show the scope of the firm and, yeah, you know, the power of the firm. My God, I mean, it was, you know, it was it was scary, you know, what what they, how crooked they were. I, I think there's a there's a uh, line in there when he goes to see David Strathairn at uh, at prison, and he's like, Ray, you know, what would it be like if uh, you know, if if I was to tell you I went to Harvard and you went to jail. And we both ended up surrounded by criminals.
0: <laughs> exactly.
6: You know, I mean, it was it, it was kind of ironic. You know, but yeah. you know that's the thing about you know people like him. I mean, I I have people in my life that were that were like that. Um, I've had a couple of ex ex girlfriends that that were like Mitch, and they and the fact that they came up from nothing. Like when they were growing up, they were like really poor, and you know had situations where they. They just did not want to relive that. It's like the biggest fear in their life mm-hmm. to be poor again. So they worked really hard to not have to face that. And it almost becomes self-defeating for them and like personal life because it's all about chasing a fortune and chasing, you know, and and and, and I mean, both of these ex-girlfriends I had have, have, have really been successful in their personal life they're not poor whatsoever or you know in their in their in their careers i should say they've been successful but personal life not so much because everything has to be like shoot for the stars you know sure Maybe you have to give more up more something more and more, and more, and more right and mitch yeah. you know mitch almost lost his wife because yeah. he was chasing that you know he can't just it was like dude you made it already you have a law degree from harvard you're not going to live in a trailer and have to worry about the next time you're going to eat a meal. Right. You know, but you don't have to like, you know, you can settle down and relax.
0: Right. Well, you have to give up something, you know, in that case, you know, you're, you're giving up your personal life for the success of your career. And that's the whole, I mean, you hear it all the time, work life balance. Uh, There's something to be said for that because uh, yeah, you may go all in on one thing, but you're going to be uh, leaving out a whole lot, of other things you know if, if you if you go that route and and to her credit you know abby mitch's wife kind of sees that from the beginning she sees there's something a little bit wrong with with the firm and why are they recruiting him so heavily and uh, uh and why are they offering so much money and and things like that and so yeah he's super talented but there's something not quite right and she she catches it from the beginning and she's not too thrilled that hey she has to give up her career uh, because the firm doesn't allow the the wives to work. So yeah, so I think she she saw it before Mitch and 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 you astutely said because probably Mitch didn't want to uh, to ever be poor again, whereas Abby just wanted to be happy and as long as they're together, that's all they needed.
6: Right, right. That's you know, yeah. I mean, she was happy living in that apartment in Boston. That's you know, right. With, with hardly nothing, because she had him and they had enough and. I mean, but, uh, you know, he just had to have more and more and more and more and more all the time. And he just had those blinders on and, and kind of got himself in that uh, situation. And boy, as yeah. far as the plot structure goes, such a great, the way he brings them down and all the things he does and the way it builds and you're trying, seeing it unfold. I, I, I really, I really loved how they did all that. He was a smart, really smart, smart, talented lawyer and talented guy.
0: Yeah. And and that's the thing where this movie had the danger of becoming almost too convoluted because everything kind of had to go right. And it is a movie. So you kind of suspend disbelief. But uh, yeah, if you I I think when I was younger, a little bit kind of went over my head a little bit because I was God, I was probably 15, 13 or, you know. 14 or 15 at the time, so as I got older and I kind of really started to pay attention, I'm like, ah, okay, I see why why he's doing this and, and why he's doing that, so I think, yeah, it's definitely more of an adult film just because of the maturity and, and where you have to kind of go with it, and it is a long movie, I mean, it's two and a half hours.
6: Oh, right, well, it's, it's actually the longest adaptation um, of a John Grisham book. Yeah. So, uh, but it's one of his, one of the reasons why I haven't read it, it is probably about its longest book, too. That's right. I tend, I tend to read a little slow, so <laughs> so uh, I, I, I really do. I, I'm a guy that has to read almost every word. I took speed reading in high school to try and get better, but, I mean, like they say, like, skip the prepositions, just kind of scan things. I can't, I can't do that. I have to read everything and, and just kind of read at a slow pace. It, it uh, takes me a long time to read a book.
0: Yeah, so, and everyone's different. See, it's funny because I'm I'm the opposite. So I, I can not necessarily speed read, but I kind of can. My eye can catch. Um, you know, there's certain things I really want to read, get into, and and kind of and and really dig deep. In. And, and there's other things I kind of know, like oh, okay, I can kind of skim through this and not really miss much. But yeah, it's it's tough because I I'll admit, and and this is much to my dad's chagrin, because my dad is a, a fiction author. I, I'm I'm all in about. Nonfiction. I barely read novels. And so <laughs> part of that, I think, is because uh, you can't skip over nonfiction and, uh, you know, pick and choose what you want to read. With uh, fiction, it's a little bit different.
6: Yeah, I, I, I get you. So I, I – well, th- this is kind of the way I do it. I, I go – I'll do a, a, a fiction book, then a nonfiction, and then a mm. fiction, and I go back and forth. So, so my last three books I've read were – no ex is it is No excuses by uh, Ace Fraley. Oh yeah, uh, uh-huh. I read that, and then I read uh, no the Regrets. Born Identity, or No Regrets. I'm sorry, No Regrets by Ace Fraley. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah, and, yeah. and
6: and then uh, and then I read the Born Identity by uh, mm-hmm. Robert Ludlum, and now yep. I'm reading the Phenomenon about Rick Ankiel. Ah, and so and then when I get through that, I'm 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 really leaning towards, especially now that we've been talking about John Grisham. I'm reading toward I'm leaning towards reading his book of short stories that he had which is um I think it's like The Stories of Ford County or whatever and it's yeah. it's all about different short stories of things that happened in northern Mississippi there and and that Memphis area you know I mean cuz that's where everything happens basically for Grisham is from northern Mississippi and that Memphis metropolitan area in Tennessee
0: That's so, right that's right. So yeah. I, I would I would recommend though if you ever do get the time, <laughs> definitely check out the firm just to even just to have a comparison too to the movie. Oh
6: yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, I do want to read it and I do have it, but uh, yeah, I just uh, I just haven't gotten there. I tend to so even as a journalist and then as a, as because I I'm writing fiction too. I have a book, you know, we've talked about it before that I'm working on and mm-hmm. and um, I, I got to just. A couple more little tweaks to it, and I'm going to be ready to put it out there and see what I can do with it. But uh, anyway, you know, I've always kind of learned to read different writers, yeah, and go through and and uh, and I do that even as a as a as a journalist. You know, I read other local newspapers and 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 try and pick up on what other people do, and uh, it kind of helps you polish your skills. As a writer. So, so I kind of jump around in the, in the people that I, that I read. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll read, uh, you know, John Grisham. And like I said, I just read Robert Ludlam, um, uh, Hunter S Thompson. I've read several of his books, um, which he goes back and forth from nonfiction and fiction.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and also read author like classic authors, whether it be Mark Twain or right. or things like that, or, or uh, Jack, was, Jack London. Jack London.
6: Jack London. London
0: Steinbeck. Yeah, Jack London is
6: is one of my favorite all time writers. Sure. Uh, you know, I so mean, I. I I can't get enough Jack London. He's he's awesome. So
0: or, or you know, Hemingway and, and Steinbeck and O. Henry, right. because even though, you know, again, you got to take it with a grain of salt because these books are, are very lengthy. But you got to remember, this is pre-television, pre-radio. This was energy. Sure, anima- right. Yeah. Right. So they are, you know, they might spend a chapter just describing <laughs> the scenery, uh, but it's good to kind of uh, also open up your horizons and and you don't have to necessarily write like that, but you might pick up something that you can adapt to your own writing.
6: absolutely absolutely but you know i mean i think i think grisham grisham does a good job as a as a storyteller and as a writer i think he has pretty good character development Mm -hmm. which i enjoy and um you know he doesn't he's he's more of a simplistic writer i mean you know some of these guys tend to get wordy and 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 um as far as descriptive and Different things, and, and Grisham just kind of—he just kind of goes along seamlessly. It's an easy read. Usually, he's writing it a l- more more like what you get out of a journalist type newspaper type writing. You know, where they say you should write at like a—I don't know what it is—like a fourth grade level. Mm-hmm. you know, with your, your vocabulary. And I mean, Grisham's kind of like that. I mean, I'm not putting him down that way. No. Just, no, you know, I, I just think that his, his style of writing is, is really easy to read.
0: Well, there's a, you know, there is a mass appeal and, and I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of people get the, the, the critics, you know, your, your pseudo intellectuals really like you know, the wordy ones, but those are the books that don't sell either because frankly, you know, you should be writing for everyone. You should it, you shouldn't be so elitist that oh, only the the higher you know the highbrow can read my books and everything. No, you should be writing for a mass appeal. You know, it doesn't mean you're selling out. You should be trying to get your work out for everyone. So
6: correct, you're right. Yeah,
0: you're right. I, I I don't have a problem with that. So going back, we'll 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 try to wrap this up. What did you take away from the film watching it recently? And uh, what are some of your notes of like some of your your favorite moments from the firm?
6: Like I said, I, Gene Hackman is is the standout there. Um, I I really liked you know when he finally came clean in the hotel room and, and he knew that what Abby was doing or whatever and you know and and, and told her you better get out of here and you he knew what was going to happen to him. Yeah. You know. And one of the things about him in that movie is he could he acted so well with his eyes and just that that smile and just his charisma. He almost acted with charisma in, in that role as Avery. Um, I thought he was great. Um, I also I loved the way that uh, that Mitch handled handled Ed Harris and the, the the government side of things. Yeah, and then I love when he goes to see Paul Servino at the end.
0: Ah, uh, the mafia guy.
6: guys. Yeah. And, and the look on Paul Servino's face, and then, you know, he he basically gets him on his side,
5: Mm -hmm. and
6: that was the last thing he needed. But, I mean, the balls it takes to walk in in front of the mafia boss who wants you dead and try and pitch him on an idea. I mean, it's a mafia boss. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you're pitching a mafia boss. That's not a – I don't know. That's pretty scary, you know.
0: Well, but, at that uh, point, he had nothing to lose. No, he had so.
6: nothing to lose, and, and I mean, he he nailed it. But boy, yeah. when he walked in, I that uh, one of my favorite parts is that that look in Paul Servino's eyes. You yeah. know, he's like looking at him like you little cocksucker. You know, It's yeah. like you know, it, it was just uh, that that was great too. And I had forgotten that Paul Servino was uh, was in that role as the mob boss. He was great too. Uh, yeah, I mean, just the cast. The cast really still stands out to me. Um, a lot of good performances. You know, I think it's an underrated movie, really. Uh, I think some people have forgotten about it and, and how good it is. And I think it's one that in Tom Cruise's filmography should be kind of remembered a little bit more.
0: Oh, I agree. I think uh, and also it's probably almost like the Stephen King syndrome. There are so many Grisham adaptations and and pretty much all of them are good that this one can kind of get lost in the mix, too.
6: Right, and and it's, you know, the firm. When I think of John Grisham, I always know, and, and I mean, I, and he knows it too. The the, it without the firm, he wouldn't be John Grisham. We wouldn't know who he was. I mean,
0: yeah, he had to get was, it right.
6: That was the book that that that, set his career off, and then that was the movie that set his career off. So, you know, I mean, I know when I was looking back when I started my book a long time ago or towards the beginning of my journalism career, and I was really involved in a lot of the fiction writing stuff at that time, uh, going to seminars and, and online, you know, I I was really doing a lot of that. And I read a lot of stuff on Grisham, you know, he had been a lawyer. Mm -hmm. He went through 27 agents. Oh yeah. Uh, before he found one to take a time to kill. And then he, And then I think he went through another, like, 30 uh, publishing houses before he found one to take a time to kill. And then they take it, and a time to kill did not do that well. It didn't, nobody really paid attention to it. And then, like I said, then he wrote The Firm, and The Firm took off and became a New York Times bestseller, and then... You know, once once you got one, then all of them are, it seems like, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, uh, the, the, the made, book business is incredibly difficult and and people don't realize that what really sells is nonfiction. And then of what actually sells fiction wise are your huge authors that are already Big, you know, you're Danielle Steele's, you're Stephen Kings, you're John Grisham's, and there's so many other struggling authors out there that even if you do get a hit, uh, there's no guarantee that you know they're gonna your your next book's going to be as big as, as that main one. It's incredibly difficult business.
6: Right? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Especially nowadays, it's even
0: worse. Oh, it's even worse. Yeah, with self publishing and 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 some and so much out there. But anyway, thank you so much, Bill. This has been awesome, and we I look forward to having you on again. Anytime, man. Anytime. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat.
2: Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.